the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering today's program. Today we're going to share a conversation with Scott McKnight, author of Reading Romans Backwards. I know, you're curious. A Gospel of Peace in the Midst of Empire. The book was published by Baylor University Press. He'll join us in the second half of this first hour of today's program. We'll also wind our way through many of the headlines. New York Governor Cuomo has resigned. A lot of people speculated that he would not. Uh, we'll talk about the uh, $1 trillion infrastructure plan and the um, the second infrastructure plan in the House um, that is uh, tethered to it and much, much more. So stick around for both hours of today's program if you can. Well, it was announced not long ago by Governor Kate Brown today that Oregonians are going to be required to start wearing masks in all indoor public places, regardless of their COVID-19 vaccination status. Now, that's a move that comes as the pandemic, according to the governor, is spiraling out of control. And new projections show that hospitalizations could double by September from today's record numbers. Now, the governor didn't specify a date when the, the mandate's going to take effect, but is expected to share more specifics during a news conference tomorrow. We'll certainly follow that and pass the information on if you are not able to watch. Well, Governor Brown also announced today that starting as early as the 18th of October, she's going to require rather all state employees in the executive branch, which includes the state legislature and the judicial branch, to show proof of full vaccination status with exceptions for religious or medical reasons. Well, despite growing criticism from some, the governor had repeatedly resisted reinstating a statewide mask mandate for the past month. She said that um, she was leaving the decision up to local leaders of Oregon's 36 counties, and she was confident that they would make the uh, the necessary COVID-19 precautions for their individual communities. Well, meanwhile, only one county, Multnomah, announced earlier this week an upcoming mask mandate that starts on Friday. Now, this is uh, the Delta variant has taken hold and seven day um, average of new known infections has increased eightfold and the number of hospitalizations uh, has increased sixfold. Now, we don't have hard numbers, but that gives you at least some impression. Well, Wednesday, the governor said that she's going to uh, she couldn't wait any longer, despite the enormous unpopularity of masks among many covid wearing residents. Uh, The governor said Oregon is facing a spike in COVID-19 hospitalizations consisting overwhelmingly of unvaccinated individuals that is quickly exceeding the darkest days of our winter surge. The governor said in a written statement, uh, when our hospitals are full, there will be no room for additional patients needing care, whether for COVID-19, a heart attack, a stroke, car collision. And she went on from there, urging people to make sure there's sufficient resource for things unrelated to COVID-19 in area hospitals. Although a small but increasing number of cities or other counties have been announcing universal mask mandates, like mandates um, are even rarer among the states, Oregon will join Louisiana. They instituted a statewide mask rule last week, 
and Nevada, where the governor said uh, residents in high transmission counties have to cover up. Uh, On the flip side, the idea of masks uh, after nearly 18 months of the pandemic is offensive to some. And uh, I would suggest it's probably offensive to all, but some choose to wear them anyway. As of last week, at least nine states, Arizona, Arkansas, Florida, Iowa, Montana, North Dakota, South Carolina, Tennessee and Texas have forbidden or limited mask mandates. Now, they don't forbid the wearing of masks, but leave it leaves the decision up to residents. That's according to The New York Times. Arkansas's governor recently said that he regrets signing an anti-mask bill into law months ago because he wants school districts to have the option of requiring masks. Well, Governor Brown said that she hopes leaders of Oregon's legislature and judicial branches will require all of their employees to also get vaccinated. She said there are two key ways of saving lives in Oregon. Vaccination is the best way to protect yourself and your family against severe illness and hospitalization. And by wearing masks, all of us vaccinated and unvaccinated, that can help ensure that a hospital bed staffed by health professionals is available for our loved ones in their time of need, whether that's COVID-19 related or some other um, emergency. So there you have it. The governor's press conference is expected tomorrow in which he'll go into greater detail and let us know when this mandate will take effect. But if you happen to live in Multnomah County, you already know that when you are in public places indoors, you will be required to wear a mask. Well, Governor Brown also declared a state of emergency as people in Oregon prepare for a stretch of dangerously hot weather this week. Dangerously because here in the Pacific Northwest, we're not used to that. The declaration means additional resources are going to be available to help the state respond to the heat wave. An excessive heat warning is going to be in effect starting tomorrow afternoon through Saturday night. Now, parts of the Willamette Valley could see temperatures near 100 degrees on Wednesday. Thursday and Friday are expected to be the hottest days, with Portland forecasted to reach 104 and 102 degrees, respectively. Well, Oregon is facing yet another extreme heat wave, and it's critical that every level of government has the resources they need to help Oregonians to uh, survive safe and healthy. That's what the governor's press release said. She went on to say, I encourage Oregonians to take proactive steps to keep themselves and their families safe, including drinking plenty of fluids, mostly water, if you can, taking advantage of cooling centers, which will be open, and checking in on neighbors, friends, and loved ones. And that's an important point. If you have elderly neighbors or those who may not have fans or air conditioning, um, We lost some Oregonians last time around for that very reason. Well, the governor has also directed the Office of Emergency Emergency Management to activate the Emergency Coordination Center to help coordinate the state's response to the heat wave. Both both Multnomah County Chair Deborah Kofori and Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler, they've declared a state of emergency in Multnomah County and the city of Portland. Kofori's declaration authorizes Multnomah County Emergency Management to coordinate the county's response and to prohibit uh, price gouging. And the uh, city's mayor, Wheeler, his declaration allows the director of the Bureau of Emergency Management to lead the city's response and designate community centers as cooling centers. Now, the governor's office is encouraging people without air conditioning in their homes to make a plan to find a cool space. And now's the time to check that out. Oregonians are also asked to check in on friends, family, and neighbors who may be vulnerable to the extreme heat. An historic heat wave you might recall in June, um, 116 degrees hit the Pacific Northwest. That was late June. It killed dozens of Oregonians and 54 people 
uh, in Multnomah County alone. So it should be taken seriously. Well, one crisis after another, that's what Portland area groups are preparing for with more than uh, more 100 plus degree temperature days ahead. And the clients they serve are among the most vulnerable among us. Um, it's extreme weather that taxes the people we're serving, says uh, Scott Kerman. He is um, serves at the Blanchet House in Old Town, Portland. It's indeed something that is deadly. Well, the house helps people who are homeless. This week, the staff and dozens of volunteers plan to open the facility as a cooling shelter. However, he says um, uh, possibly even more important is outreach on the streets for people who are not able to access cool places. I know that I have um, made sure I have water in my car. So if I see someone who's on the street just, you know, hanging, um, I might stop and give them a few bottles of, of water to just help through the uh, the hot time. So keep that in mind as the temperatures are expected to rise over the next several days. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo on Tuesday announced his resignation, effective in two weeks. The sexual harassment probe following accusations brought by 11 women who worked for him was the mitigating circumstance. New York's tough um, means uh, New York's loving, and I love New York, and I love you, he said in his announcement. I would never want to be unhelpful in any way, and I think given the circumstances, the best way I can help now is if I step aside and let government get back to governing, and therefore that's what I'll do. It was a much lengthier announcement, but that's at least the gist of it. Well, the governor started his press conference by saying he's deeply sorry for any behavior deemed inappropriate during his time in office, but denied the sexual harassment allegations contained in the state attorney general Letitia James investigation. The governor accused state investigators of bias, saying the um, the report accusing him of harassing 11 women from 2013 to 2020 in violation of state and federal law is evidence of a lack of fairness in the justice system. When there is a bias or a lack of fairness in the justice system, system he said, it is a concern for everyone. There's a difference between alleged improper conduct and concluding sexual harassment. Uh, now, um, don't get me wrong. This is not to say that there are 11 women who I truly offended. There are. And I deeply, deeply apologize. Well, Cuomo admitted to making jokes and giving people hugs and kisses, women and men. He said, I've uh, slipped and called people honey, sweetheart and darling. I mean, I mean it to be endearing, but women found it um, dated and offensive. He went on to say, I take full responsibility for my actions. I have been too familiar with people. My sense of humor can be insensitive and off putting. Well, of course, he um, understated rather dramatically some of the accusations that have been made against him. The question now is whether or not he will be impeached. And there's still some question in the legislature as to whether or not that will be the case and what will happen with some of the pending um, uh, cases against him, the nursing home debacle, for example. So then the interesting thing next will be uh, watching what happens in the legislature and whether or not um, the nursing home scandal and the uh, the fact that he moved his family to the front of the line when it came to COVID testing early on in this pandemic uh, will be addressed. 
Well, detractors of the New York uh, governor said that it was uh, past time for his resignation after the governor announced that he will be stepping down from office in two weeks. The culmination of about a year of cascading scandals, most notably allegations of pervasive sexual harassment by the governor. Well, some critics also said the resignation should not be the end of accountability for Cuomo, who New York Attorney General Letitia James said broke state and federal laws with his behavior spanning years. The corrupt reign of King Cuomo is over at last, but the fight for justice and accountability is just beginning. That's a quote from Representative Claudia uh, Tenney, a Republican from New York, in a statement shortly after his resignation. Investigations into Cuomo's abuse of power, corruption and criminal misconduct must continue, she says. Cuomo should be immediately prosecuted, not just for sexual harassment and assault, but also for his deadly nursing home policies and subsequent cover up. Uh, Tenney added, those who aided and abetted Cuomo over these many years must also answer for their crimes and corruption. Well, Albany County District Attorney Spokesperson Cecilia Walsh said that the criminal probe into Cuomo remains open. We will not be making a comment about the resignation at this time, she said. Our inquiry into criminal conduct is uh, in our judicial or rather jurisdiction remains open and pending. Uh, Lindsay Bolin, who is one of the women who uh, first accused Cuomo of harassment, expressed appreciation for James and her investigation. I'm thankful for the attorney general, the investigators and all those who have pursued the truth despite intimidation and threats of retaliation. Most importantly, I am in awe of the strength of the other women who risked everything to come forward. My hope always has been that this will make it safer for other women to report their own harassment and abuse. I will continue to fight to make that happen. Well, in other news, the Senate on Tuesday passed a major $1 trillion infrastructure spending bill and a significant show of bipartisan force that marked a big step forward for President Biden's domestic agenda. Now, the House side may be a different story. The vote was 69 to 30, with 19 Republicans, including Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, joining all Democrats to approve uh, the major investment to the nation's roads, bridges, railways, and more. To mark the achievement, Vice President Kamala Harris came to the Capitol to preside over the Senate and announce the successful vote. Big news, folks. Biden tweeted immediately after the vote. The bipartisan infrastructure deal has officially passed the Senate. I hope Congress will send it to my desk as soon as possible so we can continue our work of building back better. End quote. Well, the final passage vote was a culmination of a months long rocky effort between a group of bipartisan senators and the White House intent on showing the country that Republicans and Democrats can still work together to fix the nation's crumbling infrastructure. I'm not sure this is a great example, nor is the um, uh, the bill that's coming up on the House side attached to this infrastructure bill going to illustrate that point. Ohio Republican Senator Bob Portman, one of the lead negotiators, celebrated the vote as an historic investment in infrastructure that will serve the American people for decades to come. Uh, What we're doing here today also demonstrates to the American people that we can get our act together on a bipartisan basis and get something done, Portman said. We can do big things on a bipartisan basis if we put our minds to it. But the rare showing of bipartisanship was short-lived on Tuesday. as Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, the Democrat from New York, quickly pivoted to advancing um, the massive $3.5 trillion budget bill. 
They're uh, moving that through as a reconciliation bill that requires absolutely no support from Republicans. Minutes after the infrastructure bill's success, Schumer immediately called a procedural vote to begin debate on the Democrats' budget plan, which passed along party lines 50 to 49. Well, this partisan budget proposal will be the vehicle for Democrats to pass liberal priorities such as universal pre-kindergarten, expanded Medicare access, two free-year community college, a years of community college, subsidized child care, legalizing undocumented immigrants and green climate initiatives. The two track strategy is proceeding full steam ahead, Schumer said on Tuesday. Well, this second spending plan is spearheaded by Senator Bernie Sanders out of Vermont, uh, the chairman of the budget committee. Republicans made clear on Tuesday that they'll uh, they'll make it politically uh, painful for Democrats to pass this second bill, although they have the numbers to do so, which will not require any GOP support under a process called budget reconciliation. Democrats want to begin pushing through a reckless taxing and spending spree that was uh, authorized by our self-described socialist colleague, Chairman Sanders McConnell, uh, said on Tuesday. He said Republicans are going to force uh, tough votes on a series of politically charged amendments. We're going to argue it out right here on the floor at some length. Uh, McConnell went on to say every single senator will be going on record over and over and over. Well, the final passage of the second $3.5 trillion budget blueprint in the Senate uh, in the coming days is critical because House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said that she won't allow a standalone vote on the narrower $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure deal unless it's paired with the bigger package that liberals have demanded. So as far as this being an evidence of uh, bipartisanship and the ability of members of, of Congress, at least in the Senate, I should say, uh, coming together for a bipartisan initiative, well, not not quite so much. Well, a trillion here, a trillion there, and suddenly we're talking about real money. Well, that's a paraphrase of the famous misquote of Senator Everett Dirksen from the 1950s, but it's certainly relevant now. The U.S. national debt is fast approaching $29 trillion. Remember the um, heady Tea Party days of 2010 when the debt was a paltry $13 trillion? Those were, by comparison, pretty good times. We're going to revisit that a bit later. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to hear from Scott McKnight, author of Reading Romans Backwards, A Gospel of Peace in the Midst of Empire. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Acclaimed New Testament scholar, best-selling author, and popular blogger Dr. Scott McKnight proposes a new way to read the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, an epistle that he says has shaped Western Christianity more than any other book of the Bible. Christians have been missing the point of Romans. In reading the letter backwards, as he proposes, Paul's true intent comes into focus. Romans is about a way of life. And Dr. McKnight says in reading Romans backwards, a gospel of peace in the midst of empire. Reading Romans backwards clarifies Paul's focus on real life pastoral concerns and his message of reconciliation and living in fellowship as siblings for both the weak and the strong. The epistle offers a sustained lesson on achieving peace among all people applicable to divided churches, ancient and modern. Well, Dr. Scott McKnight is a recognized authority on New Testament, early Christianity, and the historical Jesus, is the Julius Manti Chair of New Testament at Northern Seminary in Liesel, 
uh, Illinois, the author or editor of some 75 books. Dr. McKnight is a sought-after speaker to churches, conferences, college, colleges, and seminaries um, here and around the world. Dr. McKnight is a member of the Society of Biblical Literature and the Society for New Testament Studies. He joins us today to talk about his uh, latest book, Reading Romans Backwards, The Gospel of Peace in the Midst of Empire. Dr. McKnight, thank you so much for joining us today. Georgine, it's an honor to be with you again. Thank you. As I was uh, describing the book to our listeners uh, in promoting our conversation today, uh, I wanted to emphasize that you don't need to have special powers, you don't need to walk backwards while reading, uh, but that the title of the book says precisely what you intend, that reading the, the book of Romans backwards from the end to the beginning reveals something about uh, Paul's heart that we might not otherwise uh, pick up. Now, he wrote it from start to finish. How did you discover that uh, looking at what he says in the end and working oneself forward uh, reveals perhaps um, elements of Paul's intent that we might otherwise miss? Well, Georgine, one of the principles of, of good communication is to understand our audience as well as possible. So, mm-hmm. Before we go to speak in places, before we write to places, we try to figure out what's going on there. When we interview someone, they try to study us and figure us out so when they come, they can impress us. Well, Romans 12 through 16 describes what Paul wants the church and churches, the house churches in Rome to do. He describes what these people are like. He describes their problems. He describes the people who were there. We know more about the house churches in Rome than any other uh, house set of house churches or any city to which Paul wrote. So Romans, Romans is a hard letter, Georgine. Everybody mm-hmm. admits that. Ro- people get lost in Romans 1 through 4. They are exhausted by the time they get to Romans 9. They read 1 through 8. I, I had a pastor tell me the other day his goal was to preach through Romans. He he didn't think he'd ever make it to chapter 8. When he finished, he says, I'm done. I don't know if I'll ever be able to get back to Romans. He said it exhausted me. And so I admit that. Romans 1 through 8 is hard. But let, let me make this suggestion. There are four sections in Romans. 1 through 4, 5 through 8, 9 through 11, which is a long section on, of a narrative about Israel and its relationship to Gentiles and God's surprising grace. And then chapters 12 through 16 is what we often call the practical aspect of a Pauline letter. Because Romans 1 through 8, the theology section, is so difficult, many people simply don't get to 12 through 16, and by the time they get there, they're done with 1 through 8. If, however, we study chapters 12 through 16 first and study the audience, what Paul wants the audience to do, we learn about a group of people called the strong. We can learn about a group of people he calls the weak. We learn about some people who don't want to pay their taxes and who seem to be rebellious with respect to Rome. We learn about names of people and abundance of women uh, in house churches in Rome. And all of a sudden we have a profile, a social profile, a moral profile, um, a lack of reconciliation profile of these house churches And we suddenly realize that that's the context for writing Romans, and that why Paul wrote Romans was not so that we could simply study theology, and and we can. It's a beautiful letter theologically. He wanted these two groups in Rome to quit fighting with one another, 
to be able to sit down at a table like siblings at a family table and to talk with one another without arguing. And that's why he wrote this letter. It was to create peace in the heart of the empire to model to the Roman Empire what God's grace could do in a group of people who had never been brought together before. And this was during a very difficult time uh, as well. So this wasn't in uh, peace and safety and everything was going well. This was a challenging season. for So for them to live in the way that Paul writes about in Romans was uh, very significant. Perhaps it's lost on us because we may not yeah. understand the broader context. Well, you're right. I mean, this Nero's on the, on the throne. And Nero... Um, at the beginning, offered some hope for people, and this is why the Jewish uh, folks, the Jewish believers, returned to Rome uh, under the early years of Nero. But by the time he died, he was just a megalomaniac who was paranoid about everything, and and he became, um, you know, there are words that we shouldn't be using for a man like that, but he was really a massive narcissist, egomaniac who... uh, it seemed to be worried about everybody and killing everybody. And this was right in the middle of his reign. The Christian church is beginning to suffer some struggles. And one of the more interesting things is that Paul tells them uh, not to rebel against the empire. So there had to be some people uh, in that house church that thought, you know, we're going to resist what they're telling us to do. So it's, it's, uh, it was a difficult world. It's, it's unlike most of what um, we as Christians in the United States experience. I, I, I have friends in the United States who can be in very difficult situations in families and workplaces. But by and large, we live in a world where we can pursue justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a world that was not like that at all. And the easiest thing to do with these people was to kill them. And Paul said, no, we're not going to survive if we start acting like this. We have to be good people, and we have to get along with one another. You write in the preface of reading Romans backwards that after listening or reading um, to those meaty chapters uh, written for a theological lectureship rather than, uh, we might assume, is written for a theological lectureship rather than to a local church or a set of house churches in Rome in the first century when Nero was emperor and Paul was planning his future mission to Spain, that sometimes we forget that the book of Romans wasn't written to the scholarly class. It was written to rank-and-file believers, all relatively new um, who are learning to live out their faith in a very uh, challenging uh, society. Yes, and, and that's right. It's, Romans, um, you said at the beginning, and Georgine, you're accurate, Romans is the most significant book in the history of Christian theology, and therefore probably in the Christian church. Um, it, Romans has shaped everything. And because it is a preoccupation with scholars, with theologians, and with pastors, there are many people today who just think the book of Romans is out of their reach. In fact, Georgine, there's so much intense debate about the book of Romans today. I know pastors who say, I'm not even going to look at Romans. I preach from Galatians. It seems manageable. Hmm. And that's sad. It's a yes. book. Um, but it was not written for scholars. It was it was written for the people in the city of Rome who were believers to hear. And I, I make a big deal of this, so I might as well say something. The first century uh, letters were not uh, photocopied and then distributed for everybody to have a handout. They weren't on screens in the front of the churches. 
Uh, they were publicly read aloud in someone's home. And when they were read, they were performed more than they were read the way sometimes we read a book. They were sort of acted out. And I think it was probably Phoebe who did the reading of this letter. She would have read this letter aloud five times at least to all five, and I think there are at least five house churches in Rome, according to Romans 16. She would have read this letter aloud at least five times. She would have performed this letter aloud. It takes about 90 minutes to read Romans well aloud. If you factor in the fact, uh, the observation that when people read letters in the first century, people would have been asking questions. The performance would have paused after a question so people could answer it. Paul asks about 30 questions in Romans 2 through 4. That's going to take a long time of pausing. It's starting to move now like a Mr. Rogers show instead of Sesame Street. Hmm. And, it, and, and she would have had to ask question, answer questions as people raised their hands. And let's face it, you can't read Romans 1 through 8 without having at least 25 questions. Romans 9 through 11 will generate that many at least. And by the time you get to chapter 12, you've got people in the audience confused and irritated and maybe even angry with one another because Paul seems both uh, to be an equal opportunity critic going after both the strong and the weak. So this letter was read aloud, and I'm guessing it took at least three, four hours to read the letter aloud one time. Hmm. And mm. she did that probably five times. Who knows? Maybe over a couple weeks. This was an intense experience for people to hear from the Apostle Paul. And he was pushing both sides to knock off their claims of privilege and to start acting like siblings at the table. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Dr. Scott McKnight, author of Reading Romans Backwards, many other books as well, A Gospel of Peace in the Midst of Empire. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Conversation with Dr. Scott McKnight, his book, Reading Romans Backwards, A Gospel of, of a Peace in the Midst of Empire. Romans is about privilege and power. Paul's gospel deconstructs power and privilege. And Paul's lived theology turns power upside down and denies privilege. Let's talk about um, the, the notion of uh, the weak and the strong. Who are the weak and the strong that Paul refers to in Romans and that applies to us in our various roles? Thanks, Georgian. Yes, Romans chapter 14 and 15 discuss, uh, describe two groups of people, um, as Paul tries to get them to get along, the strong and the weak. The weak are Jewish believers who know the privilege of having been raised as the elect people of God in Israel's faith, part of the covenant that God made with Abraham, destined according to the Bible's promises to be the center of the world. And they believe that uh, they believed in the Bible and they believe that Gentiles who became believers in their Jewish Messiah, Jesus, should be as committed to the Bible as they were. In other words, they thought they shouldn't be eating pork and they thought they should be celebrating Sabbath and they thought they should be more careful with whom they ate. The strong are Gentile believers who have social status 
uh, as privilege in the Roman, uh, the city of Rome and in the Roman Empire. They did not like the idea of following the Jewish law. They disrespected the word that Paul uses for them is that they despised the weak. The weak judged the strong. And Paul uh, sees the privilege of the strong to be people who have experienced the freedom in Christ. They're growing a bit in Christian faith and in their Christian walk as lived theology. And Paul wants them to learn how to get along with Jewish believers. And if Jewish believers don't want to eat bacon and don't want to have ham sandwiches, they shouldn't be forced to do so. And the Jewish believers shouldn't force Gentiles to watch what they eat according to Jewish uh, rules and regulations. So we have in here, in a sense, two ethnic groups who have a sense of privilege, who are not getting along with one another, but who Paul uh, argues and states and clarifies should be seeing one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, as siblings. They should be treating one another as equals in Christ. They should have love for one another. They should contribute to one another. They should look after one another, and they should respect one another's differences. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 14. The Lord has died for each of these. Let each of these people operate according to their own special lights and, in a sense, their own privileged backgrounds. So we have a battle of privilege. And Georgine, I, I firmly believe, and I don't want to get in trouble with anyone here, I believe that this is the way the church in the United States is right now. We have some people who have privileges of the translation they use or the pastor they follow or the theology that they have or the particular theory of the Christian life that they operate with. And they see other people um, as, not, as not having those things. They look, they look down their nose at these people. They're claiming their privilege while others, the same group of people, who are seen as lower-class Christians by one group see themselves as having experienced the freedom of God in Christ, and they, they do things that the other group doesn't like, and they think the other group ought to be doing those same things. We have the same thing going on in the United States, sadly, with respect to politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have people uh, in the church who can hardly stomach the fact that there are people of the opposite political party in their church. And they're allowing those political persuasions to disrupt the fellowship of God in Christ that we have through the Spirit. Um, we have the same thing with ethnicities in the United States. We have the same thing with gender in the United States. And Paul says in Galatians 3.28, one of the things he learned in every church he founded, in every problem that arose, that there is in Jesus Christ, either Jew or Greek, neither slave nor free, male and female. He says in Colossians 3, Scythian or barbarian. We are, in fact, siblings in Christ, and our relationship in Christ transcends every ethnic division, every gender division, every social division, every economic division, every education. I could go on. Political division. Our relationship to one another in Christ should transcend those and we should respect the fact that other people who are our siblings have different views than ours, and we should encourage them to think along with us 
as we learn to think along with them. Mm. Now, this is what you describe as um, Paul's lived theology. This is one element of it. As we understand, starting from the end of Romans and working our way forward, um, how does this help us better understand some of the earlier verses as we consider the context, to whom he is writing, where we fit into that um, uh, that tapestry, and how we are to respond to one another? Well, let's, um, we could, I mean, Romans is a long letter, but if we read, uh, as we read Romans, I, I encourage people, my students, uh, people in my church, my Bible studies, when you read at the end of a paragraph in Romans or at the end of a section, you know, italicized uh, words that mark off sections in our translations, ask the question, how would the weak, how would the Jewish believers have responded to this? And how would the strong or the Gentile believers have responded to this? And when you start thinking like this, you begin to notice things you've never seen before. For instance, in the middle of Romans chapter 11, verse 13, Paul says, I now speak to you Gentiles. Now, Paul is not writing to raw Gentiles in the Roman forum. Uh, They're not listening to him. He's writing to the Gentile believers in Rome, and he says, now, these words are for you, which indicated probably that chapter 9-1 all the way through 11-11 or so was for the Jewish believers. And you see there's a lot of Old Testament there. But when he starts talking to the Gentiles, hardly any Old Testament. We find the same thing in Romans 1 through 4 where Paul all of a sudden lights into someone he calls the judge in Romans 2.1. And it's very strong language as he criticizes them for the way they are understanding Gentile pagan idolaters, is that they sit in judgment on them. And Paul says, wait a minute, wait a minute, we're all sinners. And we all need the grace of God. We all become siblings because of the work of God in Christ The grace of God through the cross and resurrection has made us siblings. So Paul wants us to be seeing, and this is what, Georgine, this is what, someone asked me this question today. Well, why didn't Paul start with chapters 12 to 16? And I said, look, the audiences to whom he wrote this letter were living in chapters 14 Mm -hmm. and 15. They were arguing with one another. And they get this letter and I think the strong are going, yeah, I like how you're talking here. And the weak are saying, I don't like you picking on us like this. And then all of a sudden, the weak are saying, now, finally, yes, do Jews have an advantage? Much in every way, Paul says. The strong are saying, I don't like that idea. And the weak are saying, I like that. There is a dialogue going on throughout this entire letter. And I would encourage churches and small groups almost to have some uh, role playing as they become Uh, They have to become familiar with what Paul says in Romans 14 to 15 to read the letter and say, how would you as a weak believer respond to this passage? And all of a sudden, we realize Paul's talking to some live bodies with some live issues, and he's trying to get them to get along the way you and I and our churches need to learn to get along. Yeah, live bodies with live issues in the 21st century. There is so much more we could talk about, Dr. McKnight, um, but our time is up. I thank you for taking the time to be with us today, and I would certainly recommend our listeners uh, pick up a copy of Reading Romans Backwards, A Gospel of Peace in the Midst of Empire. Thank you once again, and have a wonderful evening. Georgine, great to hear you again and to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. Until next time, bye-bye. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Well, before the uh, the break in the uh, earlier part of the program, I was talking about the radical spending agenda that is afoot. A trillion here, a trillion there, and suddenly we're talking about real money. Well, the U.S. national debt is fast approaching $29 trillion. Now, you might remember the uh, Tea Party days of 2010 when the debt was a Paltry $13 trillion. Those were, by comparison, well, pretty good days. Well, few Americans care about that anymore now that the uh, bipartisan $1.1 trillion infrastructure uh, bill has passed, at least in the Senate, which largely isn't about roads and bridges, and which the CBO's lowball estimate says would add $256 billion to the debt, as well as another $3.5 trillion to further the fundamental transformation of the United States. All that stands in their um, way are a few uninspired Republicans. But who can blame those uh, Republicans? Um, As we already said, Americans don't really care about the debt. They might raise an eyebrow at the price tag, but then conclude, oh, well, I just want my entitlement. Well, that's where we stand at this point, and we're following that drama as it's playing out in Washington. Well, in other news, uh, Dr. Fauci says, hopefully, Making young kids wear masks won't have lasting negative impact, hopefully. Well, it turns out there's been no study whatsoever on the impact of long-term mask wearing among small children. Well, White House Chief Health Advisor Dr. Anthony Fauci said on Monday that hopefully making young kids wear them won't have a lasting impact. Well, during an interview with, um, uh, let's see, uh, Hugh Hewitt. Dr. Fauci said it's important to keep an open mind about masking after the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommended that unvaccinated children ages two and older wear them and that students wear masks in all K through 12 schools, regardless of vaccination status. In light of the rapid spread of COVID-19, the Delta variant, it's not comfortable, obviously, for children to wear masks, particularly the younger children, he said. But, you know, what we're starting to see, Hugh, and I think it's going to unfold even more as the weeks go by, that this virus not only is so extraordinarily transmissible, but we're starting to see pediatric hospitals get more and more younger people and kids, not only numerically, but what seems to be more severe disease. Now we're tracking that. Now, he says, the CDC is tracking that really very carefully. So it's going to be a balance that we would feel very badly if we all of a sudden said, OK, kids don't wear masks. Then this is all one sentence, by the way, and I'm quoting. Uh, then you find out retrospectively that this virus in a very, very strange and unusual way is really hitting kids really hard. He continued. But hopefully this will be a temporary thing, temporary enough that it doesn't have any lasting negative impact on them. Well, Hugh Hewitt in the conversation pushed back just a bit. He cited an editorial on Sunday by the Wall Street Journal titled The Case Against Masks for Children, which argues that long-term masking can cause physical and developmental issues in children and that there's little evidence to back up a mandate. Facial expressions are integral to human connection, particularly for younger children who are only learning how to signal fear, confusion and happiness. You had uh, said again, quoting the Wall Street Journal article covering a child's face mutes these nonverbal forms of communication can result in robotic and emotionless interaction. So, doctor. What did you base it on and why? Well, Fauci responded by claiming the data cited in the editorial dates back to the alpha variant, not necessarily all the most recent data on Delta, which sort of misses the point on the subject. Meanwhile, a local school board member in Oklahoma said on Monday that she's worried that small children might murder each other. That's the word she chose, murder each other. 
by spreading the coronavirus without wearing masks. Now, murder is a particular word. It doesn't just mean that someone's death results from your close proximity. Murder is an intentional thing or an inadvertent thing uh, generally applied to adults. It's just not okay for kids to commit murder by coming to school without a mask. That's a quote from Norman Public School Board member Linda Sexton. And when it comes down to it, it's possible they will cause a death of another child because they come to school without a mask. That's not okay. Well, their comments occurred um, in a video posted by the school board. Sexton called on her uh, district and others to stand up against the governor, uh, who is reportedly refusing to allow mask mandates for school children. In May, he passed a law prohibiting school districts from imposing mandates unless the governor has at least declared a state of emergency that is in effect for their area. I would like to try to find a way to stand up as a district, she went on to say, and uh, get our supporting superintendents to stand up with us and protect our little kids. It's insane to send five, six, seven, eight um, and up all the way through 11 year olds that don't have a choice about the vaccine. Well, she didn't immediately respond to questions about her choice of the word murder, suggesting that kids will be murdering one another, which raises, I suppose, the question, should they be held accountable for the murder of their classmates if they fail to wear a mask. Things getting a little dramatic. Um, In other developments, Tucker Carlson echoed the claim that you can be sophisticated or you can be a super spreader. There's apparently a distinction in that if you happen to be sophisticated, someone like the former president, um, it doesn't matter if your event could be a super spreader event. If you're less sophisticated and you're at a motorcycle rally, then, in fact, you're an idiot and you're probably going to get COVID. Apparently, the um, virus can tell the difference, which is fascinating. I haven't read any studies on that yet, but that seems to be what we're hearing from the media. Well, a Chicago police officer suspected killer has been charged with first degree murder. The Chicago man and his brother have been charged in a weekend shooting that left one police officer dead and another seriously wounded. The Chicago Police Department confirmed Um, Imant Morgan, 21, is charged with first degree murder on Saturday's fatal shooting of 29 year old officer Ella French, as well as attempted murder and other charges. His brother, 22-year-old Eric Morgan, faces charges of aggravated unlawful use of a weapon, unlawful use of a weapon by a felon, and obstruction of justice. Officers had stopped a vehicle Saturday with two men and a woman inside just after 9 p.m. when a male passenger opened fire, police said on Sunday. Officers reportedly returned fire, striking the passenger who appeared to fire at them. Well, earlier in the day, federal prosecutors charged a 29-year-old Indiana man, Jamal Danzi, with purchasing and then illegally supplying the semi-automatic handgun used in that shooting. In other developments, a cop sent a powerful message to Democrat Mayor Lori Lightfoot after the officer's murder. They turned their back on her after asking her not to appear at the hospital where the other officer is recovering. Chicago police identify the hero officer killed during a traffic stop, emphasizing we will never forget. And the brother of the slain Chicago police officer spoke out after the deadly shooting, saying God took the wrong kid, referring to his sister. Florida's health department says the CDC's COVID count for the state is wrong. They anticipate a correction. We'll see how that goes. 
The Florida Department of Health took on to Twitter on Monday to ask the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to update its COVID-19 case tracker for the state because it incorrectly combined multiple days into one, which made the Sunday daily case count explode to the state's worst ever. Well, the department said it follows the CDC's guidelines for reporting cases. They reported 28,317 new cases on Sunday, which was reported that would mark the most confirmed infections in one day in the state since the beginning of the pandemic. Wrong again. The number of cases uh, was significantly lower. The health department said there were 15,000 cases on Sunday and a three-day average of 18,000. The CDC did not immediately respond to an after-hours email asking for clarification. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'd like to invite you to join Jim Daly of Focus on the Family and Amy Ford from Embrace Grace every Friday night, now through the end of August, for a series of inspiring conversations to encourage you to live as a pro-life parent, friend, and everyday hero. Together, they're going to gather around a table each week with friends to discuss six unique topics surrounding life. Every episode will include guests from all walks of life, doctors, college students, disabled persons, and pro-life leaders. You can find out more at focusonthefamily.com slash life. That's through the month of August. Well, companies across the... Uh, uh, the country are raising wages at one of the fastest paces in decades, but workers may not be reaping the benefits of those gains amid the recent burst of inflation. Average hourly earnings climbed in July for the third consecutive month, raising a rather rising 4% from the year ago period and 0.4% over the month, according to the Labor Department's monthly payroll report. And that follows similar gains in April, May and June. Well, low wage workers appear to be the biggest beneficiaries of the pay increase with industries as such as leisure, hospitality and retail, which employ roughly 30 million people combined, reporting some of the strongest gains. Well, the increase is in part due to an unusual paradigm in the labor market. Businesses are desperate to hire workers and take advantage of the surge in consumer spending as Americans flush with cash, venture out to eat at restaurants, shop and travel. Even though there are a record number of job openings, there are still 5.7 million out-of-work Americans. But some of those gains are being erased by the rapidly rising price of consumer goods and services. Have you gone to the grocery store lately? Well, real wages, which measure the income after accounting for inflation, dropped by nearly 2% on average in June compared to 2020. In June, consumer prices jumped 0.9% from the previous month and 5.4% over the past year, the biggest increase in 13 years, according to the Labor Department. Well, Republican lawmakers have likened the growing disparity between wages and consumer prices to a, a pay cut for working class Americans. Well, Oregon governor, uh, Oregon's governor has signed a bill suspending math and reading proficiency requirements for high school graduates. Governor Kate Brown, she signed a bill last month with little fanfare that drops the requirement that high school students prove proficiency in reading, writing or math before graduation. Now, the Oregonian reported that the governor has seemed to avoid discussing Senate Bill 744. Her move to sign the bill wasn't public until recently because her office didn't hold a signing ceremony or issue a press release. Well, there's a reason for that. The paper also pointed out that the bill was first signed on the 14th of July, but not added into the state's database until the 29th of July due to a glitch in the system. 
Well, Brown's office didn't immediately respond to an after hours email for clarification either. Well, what the um, the governor has done, what the legislature has done, um, and by the way, most Republicans came out against the bill, uh, was to pass a bill that would make it um, uh, less discriminatory for minority students, which is incredibly insulting, rather than rise to the occasion to see to it that these students become proficient in math and reading and other subjects. They simply drop the requirement altogether. Now, what happens when you graduate from high school and you're illiterate, and you're trying to enter the workforce. You can't write, you can't read, and you don't do math. That is a failure. But they've redefined it by simply suggesting that, well, black and brown students, they just can't measure up, so we're just going to drop the requirement altogether. Now, if that's not um, uh, racist, I don't know what is. Well, in June, state lawmakers voted to approve the bill that suspended the requirements for students for three years. Uh, Foundations for a Better Oregon said in a statement at the time that the bill is intended to truly reflect what every student needs to thrive in the 21st century. And apparently that does not include reading, writing or math. Supporters of the bill insist that considering math and reading essential skills has been an unfair challenge for students who do not test well. Well, that may be. So let's let's address the issue, the challenge so that they can learn And change the test in a way so that they can become proficient rather than simply saying, well, we're not going to bother to try to teach them to read, write or do math. The report said the requirement was first suspended at the start of the pandemic. Uh, The KATU report pointed out that Republicans have come out against the bill and claim that it lowers expectations for kids. But there was some bipartisan support as well. Well, the paper reported that the bill uh, could stay in effect for five years until uh, there are new requirements. So this is what we've done for kids. We've deprived them of in-class learning for about a year, year and a half. Uh, we don't know what this next school year is going to bring. And then we're simply going to drop the standards so that we can pass them and they're not really qualified uh, for gainful employment. I mean, the governor's not going to hire a high school graduate uh, in her office who can't read, write or do math uh, and expect others to do the same. It's just it's an egregious um act on the part of the legislature, but that's what Oregon has done. Uh, In other news, Census Bureau statisticians uh, and outside experts are trying to unravel a mystery. Why were so many questions about households in the 2020 census left unanswered? Well, residents didn't respond to a multitude of questions about sex, race, Hispanic background, family relationships and age, even when providing account of the number of people living in the home, according to documents released by the agency. Well, statisticians had uh, to fill in the gaps. Well, maybe people don't want to provide all of that information to the government. It's certainly their choice to do so or not to do so. Reflecting an early stage in the number crunching, the documents show that 10 to 20 percent of questions were not answered in the 2020 census, depending on the question and state. According to the Census Bureau, later phases of processing show the actual rates were even lower. Well, the rates have averaged one to three percent in 170 years of previous U.S. census, according to the University of Minnesota demographers. Well, the information is important because data with demographic details will be used for drawing congressional and legislative districts. And that data, which the Census Bureau will release on Thursday, is also used to distribute one point five trillion dollars in federal spending every year. But I think people are fed up with being asked uh, the kind of personal questions that balkanize the country and make us a bit uh, less un- less comfortable with one another. So they're trying to determine what went wrong. Why don't people want to 
uh, fill in the blanks for the government, even when, as they argue, it's in their best interest. Well, I think some of us have come to the conclusion that the decisions that are made based on that information isn't always in our best interest. I'll be interested to uh, see what they come up with by way of explanation that I can almost guarantee won't include that. Well, according to a new survey, Fox News is the only major cable news network that has seen an increase in trust among viewers since February. That's according to a new survey. Researcher Brand Keys found that over the past six months, eight of the nine TV news brands it regularly examines showed lowered trust levels. Fox, however, saw its trust among viewers grow to 89 percent, the survey reported, an increase of three percentage points since the last poll taken in February. MSNBC had its trust level among its viewers dip from 93 percent to 90 and CNN fell to 87 percent from 92 percent in February. Trust is defined by a number of factors when it comes to TV news. Brand Keys said the chief among them is a fair presentation of important content with accuracy, clarity and timeliness next uh, contributing to viewer trust and evaluations. Well, the poll was conducted by asking some 4,000 people to rate the TV news brands they watch regularly more than three times a week. It reported uh, a 95% confidence level in general. Uh, We believe as people return to a semblance of pre-COVID normalcy, viewers have uh, quite literally tuned out the news. Uh, Fox consistently ranks as the highest rated cable news network, Over the past several weeks, as the network's news divisions has covered the latest events related to the pandemic, top hosts at the networks have increasingly encouraged viewers to seek and receive a coronavirus vaccine. A poll published last week found vaccine hesitancy among Fox News viewers had dipped by double digits since March. Now, interestingly, there's a fallacy going on that Fox News Republicans are the uh, the the holdouts. But the latest research indicates that African-Americans who are not Fox News viewers and not Republican are the largest numbers of hesitant vaccine acceptance. We're going to take a break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, a judge has granted a mother full custody of her eight-year-old son, and that's not much of a headline, but she wants to transition him to a girl against the wishes of his father. Uh, and um, this has been a back and forth for several years. So Michael Knowles says this, truly sick in a just society, the mother and judge would be in prison. But Abigail Schreier says in the past year, major hospitals in Europe have ended or curtailed pediatric hormone treatments in response to their own internal reviews. In March, the UK National Institute for Health and Care Excellence concluded that the benefits of hormone treatment for pediatric gender dysphoria patients were unclear. The Karolinska Hospital in Sweden, which is affiliated with the institute that awards the Nobel Prize in Medicine in May, decided to end its use of puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones for treatment of gender dysphoria for all patients under 18, except in controlled research settings. Finland's National Gender Program issued new guidelines after noticing that many of the kids it treated with hormone therapy failed to show improvement in mental health. Clinicians across the West are acknowledging that the evidentiary basis supporting medical transition for kids is shaky and that hormone treatments on adolescents don't produce significant mental health benefits. Yet there's no home for that message inside the United States or in the U.S. medical societies. As 
endocrinologist and SEGM co-founder Will Malone points out. You can read more in the Wall Street Journal. A CNN anchor has declared Fox News Republicans are causing the surge. Well, CNN's Brian Kyler tweeted unvaccinated Americans disproportionately Republican Fox viewers are fueling the surge, not migrants who are near 100 percent tested and quarantined if positive. Uh, why not talk about the border crisis without dabbling in B.S. and racist tropes about immigrants? Well, she said this after the CDC already announced unvaccinated Americans are disproportionately black with nearly three quarters still unvaccinated. Ben uh, Demonech points out the claim that migrants are near 100 percent tested and quarantine is if positive isn't just a blatant lie. It's so out of touch. It makes you wonder why else this CNN anchor believes that. Uh, is bereft of the facts. I've listened to so many interviews with border agents making that point, as well as um, border states. Governor DeSantis is threatening to withhold school board salaries if they defy the state ban on mask mandates. And gender studies departments are converging to um, hate on Israel. These are gender studies departments from Yale to UCLA to Stanford to Penn State to Notre Dame to Butler. The list is massive and, well, disturbing. Christina Summers points out sane professors at USC have cried foul. Professors at other schools should do the same. Jen Psaki says that being called nice is now considered sexist. Well, Vogue did a profile on the White House press secretary, Jen Psaki, where she claims to be a victim of sexism since she started with the Biden administration. From the Federalist, uh, it's uh, like nails on a chalkboard, she told the magazine, and it still happens. I was introduced to a foreign delegation in the hallway uh, the other day as uh, this is Jen. You may have seen her do the briefings. She is really a nice person. I'm like, really? You can't think of a better description. Well, from the independent, it's also this desire to put people in a box. Yes, sometimes I'm friendly and joyful and sometimes I'm tough and sometimes I'm straightforward. Well, according to a new survey... Well, I've already kind of gone over that. I'm not going to do it again. A school tells a Catholic family to remove their child from the school uh, the child was to attend, kindergarten, to avoid learning the LGBTQ agenda. An Atlanta public elementary school principal told a Catholic couple that their child would need to leave the district to avoid learning about LGBTQ plus issues at the age of five. The parents were startled by several of the books, many of which referenced sexual orientation, trans, uh, transgenderism and progressive ideology. Well, the White House has uh, partnered with a, a creepy devil horn wearing social media influencer. Town Hall points out, and you can read it there, townhall.com. The White House has uh, recruited Village Marketing to uh, find the in, uh, find and enlist young influencers on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, and Twitch to push their audiences to get vaccinated. One of the influencers uh, partnering with the Biden administration, Skinner, posted a video on Monday in which he sports long acrylic nails and a skirt while skipping around the White House complex in character as Cooper, the Gen Z White House intern. Okay, maybe somebody will get vaccinated. The absolutely disturbing video can be found on Twitter. Uh, This can't be real, but is honestly what on earth is this? It's not funny, says Dan Crenshaw. If you're going to um, be an embarrassment, at least be funny. Megan Fox says this is exactly how I picture uh, the administration tackling this issue. Under government and politics, Mitch McConnell says the GOP won't help the Democrats finance their socialist shopping list. 
in the debt ceiling standoff. And double standards, Rashida Tlaib is seen dancing at an indoor wedding without a mask after slamming Rand Paul for throwing a tantrum at his uh, state is being swallowed whole by the virus. Well, around the nation, Chicago police officers turned their backs on Mayor Lightfoot after two officers were shot, one fatally. And how scared is Gavin Newsom of Larry Elder? The governor is cleaning uh, trash off the streets for photo ops ahead of the narrowing recall election. I'm not sure I see the connection, but he might be looking for support. What could possibly go wrong? Oregon Governor Brown has signed a bill suspending math and reading proficiency requirements for high school students who hope, presumably, to be employed one day. Identity politics didn't go over well in the census. Experts are puzzled by the high rate of unanswered questions. And job openings jumped to a record high of 10.1 million. The Tokyo Olympics ratings spiraled by 42 percent, spelling trouble for traditional TV. You can read more about that at Axios. Well, on this day in history, 1921, Franklin Roosevelt is stricken with polio at his summer home on the the, uh, Canadian island of Campobello. 1988, President Ronald Reagan signs a measure providing $20,000 payments to still living Japanese Americans who were interned by their government during World War II. 1993, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is sworn in as the second female justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. On this day in history, 1995, Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols are charged with 11 counts in the Oklahoma City bombing. 1995, on this day in history, Norma McCorvey, Jane Rowe of the 1973 Supreme Court decision legalizing abortion, announces she has joined the anti-abortion or pro-life group Operation Rescue. 2008, at the Beijing Olympics, Michael Phelps begins his long march toward eight gold medals by winning the 400-meter individual medley in four minutes, 3.84 seconds, smashing his own world record. And finally, on this day in history, 2014, Rory McIlroy wins his second straight major championship and fourth of his young career, rallying on the back nine in the PGA Championship in Louisville, Kentucky. Well, our time is short, and I'm not really sure what I should start at this point. Uh, We need to take a break in just a moment. Let me see if there's something I can start and finish. It does not appear to be. Well, I got two minutes. All right. Well, currently, two million illegal aliens are scheduled to cross the southern border in the next year with um, illegal impunity, but without vaccinations or COVID-19 tests or lectures from Washington. That is a quote from Victor Davis Hanson. In 1966, Columbia University sociologist Richard Andrew Cloward and Francis Fox Piven formulated the Cloward-Piven strategy. It was a plan designed to overload the welfare state bureaucracy with demands that were impossible to meet, thereby precipitating crisis and the ultimate collapse of our society and its capitalist system. Well, nothing epitomizes this effort but better than a Biden administration that's willfully and effectively eliminating the state's southwestern border. Now, one might wonder, why on earth would you allow that to happen? What's the benefit to the nation as a whole? Well, as Hansen notes, two million illegal aliens, many of whom are infected with COVID-19 or not, we don't really know, are pouring across the border. For perspective, there are only four cities in the entire nation with populations in excess of two million, New York, Chicago, Los Angeles and Houston. In 2008, former President Barack Obama expressed his intentions to fundamentally transform the United States of America. In May of 2020, Joe Biden also promised to fundamentally transform the country using the pandemic as his vehicle to do so. The willfully orchestrated chaos at the border is that transformation 
on steroids. Yet it gets even more reprehensible. Despite their so-called commitment to transparency, the administration continues to hide how they are dealing with the record numbers of crossers of our border. The ImmigrationReform.com website reveals the Department of Homeland Security has begun flying unaccompanied alien minors and family units to cities across the U.S. under the cover of night. And Laughlin Air Force Base in Del Rio, Texas, is being used as a distribution hub for this insult to the American taxpayer. Tucker Carlson obtained email from a whistleblower revealing instructions from Base Commander Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Burroughs not to divulge the Air Force's collaboration. Now, we've run out of time in this segment, but we'll revisit the subject. What's happening and why? Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I opened the program with the government's announcement today that Oregonians will be required to start wearing masks in all indoor public spaces, regardless of their COVID-19 vaccination status. That's a move that comes as the pandemic, according to the governor, spirals out of control and new projections show that COVID-19 hospitalizations could double by September from today's record numbers. The governor didn't specify a date for when the mandate will take effect, but is expected to share more specifics during a news conference tomorrow. Now, as you might recall, Multnomah County made the decision that on Friday, masks will be required in public places indoors. My guess is the governor will uh, will do the same. Well, Governor Brown also announced today that uh, starting as early as the 18th of October, she's going to require all state employees in the executive branch which includes uh, state legislatures, legislators, and the judicial branch to show proof of full vaccination status, with exceptions for religious or medical reasons. And despite growing criticism from some, the governor had repeatedly resisted reinstating a statewide mask mandate for the past month, saying that she was leaving the decision up to the local leaders of Oregon's 36 counties, and she was confident that they would make the uh, the right and necessary COVID-19 precaution decisions for their individual communities. Well, that has been the case, but apparently that has not been sufficient, according to the governor. Mean, uh, meanwhile, only one county, Multnomah, announced an upcoming mask mandate that, as I mentioned, starts on Friday. This is the the uh, Delta variant uh, that's taken hold, and seven-day average of new known infections has increased eightfold and the number of hospitalizations has increased sixfold. Now, actual numbers, I mean, eightfold, sixfold, that gives an impression, but that's not actual numbers. I, I don't have them in front of me, however. Well, Wednesday, the governor said that she could wait no longer, despite the enormous unpopularity of masks among many COVID-wearing uh, residents. The governor said uh, Oregon is facing a spike in COVID-19 hospitalizations consisting overwhelmingly of unvaccinated individuals that is quickly exceeding the darkest days of our winter surge. The governor said in a written statement on uh, on the subject, when our hospitals are full, there will be no room for um, additional patients needing care, whether for COVID-19, a heart attack or a stroke, a car collision or a variety of other emergency situations. If our hospitals run out of staffed beds, all Oregonians will be at risk. Although a small but increasing number of cities or other uh, counties have been announcing universal mask mandates, such as mandates are um, rare among the states, Oregon will join Louisiana, which instituted a statewide mask rule last week, and Nevada, uh, where the governor has said residents in high transmission counties must cover up. In other words, wear a mask. Well, on the flip side, the idea of masks after nearly 18 months 
of the pandemic is offensive to some. I think it's probably offensive to all, although um, some are willing to comply. As of uh, last week, at least nine states, Arizona, Arkansas, Florida, Iowa, Montana, North Dakota, South Carolina, Tennessee and Texas have forbidden or limited mask mandates, according to the New York Times. Now, they're not forbidding people to wear them, but they're not allowing the mandate that requires people to wear them. They're allowing citizens there to use their judgment. Governor Brown says she hopes leaders of Oregon's legislative and judicial branches require all employees to also get vaccinated. There are two keys to saving lives. The governor went on to say vaccination is the best way to protect yourself and your family against severe illness, hospitalization and death. And by wearing masks, all of us vaccinated and unvaccinated can help ensure that a hospital bed staffed by health professionals is available for our loved ones in their time of need. So the story will be updated uh, tomorrow when there's a press conference held by the governor. But the mandate of, of wearing masks in public places will be back on soon. And the details announced by the governor in her press conference. Also, Governor Kate Brown declared a state of emergency today as people in Oregon prepare for a stretch of dangerously hot weather this week. Well, that declaration means additional resources will be available to help the state respond to the heat wave. Heat wave masks. Pretty rough combination. An excessive heat warning will be in effect Wednesday afternoon through Saturday night. Parts of the Willamette Valley could see temperatures near 100 degrees on Wednesday. Thursday and Friday are expected to be the hottest days, with Portland forecasted to reach 104 and 102 degrees Respectively, Oregon is facing yet another extreme heat wave, and it's critical that every level of government has the resources they need to help keep Oregonians safe and healthy, the governor said in her press release. I encourage Oregonians to take proactive steps to keep themselves and their families safe, including drinking plenty of fluids, taking advantage of cooling centers and checking in on neighbors, friends and loved ones. The governor has also directed the Office of Emergency Management, or OEM, to activate the Emergency Coordination Center to help coordinate the state's response to the heat wave. Both uh, Multnomah County Chair Deborah Kofori and Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler, they've declared a state of emergency for Multnomah County and the city of Portland. Kofori's declaration authorizes Multnomah County Emergency Management to coordinate the county's resources and to um, prohibit price gouging. Uh, The mayor's declaration allows the director of the Bureau of Emergency Management to lead the city's response and designate community centers as cooling centers. So keep that in mind. If you see someone who is struggling, uh, particularly on the streets, you might refer them to one of those cooling centers. And for elderly neighbors and those you're not sure have sufficient fans and cooling mechanisms, Check in on them and make sure they are well provided for. The governor's office is encouraging people without air conditioning in their homes to make a plan to find a cool space. Oregonians are also asked to check on their friends, their family, their neighbors who may be vulnerable to extreme heat. Now, the historic heat wave we experienced earlier this summer was a peak of 116 degrees. It hit the Pacific Northwest in late June and it killed dozens of Oregonians. We're not looking at temperatures that high, but at least 54 people died due to the heat in Multnomah County alone. So the governor and others, the city and the county, are trying to prevent that from happening again. Well, as the Pacific Northwest braces for another round of 100-plus degree weather this week, some Portland area organizations said that they are better prepared to save lives this time around. 
It's extreme weather that taxes the people we're serving, says Scott Kerman. He's an executive director at the Blanchet House in Old Town, Portland. It's uh, indeed something that is deadly. So some of these services in our community are also better prepared for the hot weather that's coming. Uh, So make note of that if you find someone in distress or in need. Well, we are out of time. I do want to acknowledge James Blend as our producer, Clark Hilton as today's engineer, and I'd like to thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night and stay cool. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.